The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening I'm joined, as always, by Father Anthony Cicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and the author of our book, Work of Human Hands, that we will be studying here this evening on the show. Father, thanks again for being here, and welcome back. It's always a pleasure. I'd just like to tell listeners who know that I'm an organist that that was not me playing the intro, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you know, you still have too much guess. talent there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Father, we move into Chapter Five of uh, your book here this evening, which is titled "The Mass as an Assembly." And I think this is probably, as we discussed pre-show, um, this is an installment of you know, the series of shows. I think our listeners are really going to relate to because we've all seen and felt this, whether it be your church in the round that you, know, you used to go to or uh, uh, you know, the priest talking about the assembly of the people, the assembly of the people of God. You know, this is a word that has been driven home for people to get this into their minds, that this is all about assembly. So I think we would be best to start off here and just start sort of a general overview here. Father, you said in this chapter, chapter 5, that after Vatican II, the understanding of liturgical law took a fundamental shift. Tell us about that fundamental shift. Yes, uh, this was very interesting. This is something that I came across in uh, Father Rickstetter's uh, book, uh, Liturgical Law, New Style, New Spirit. Uh, Rickstetter traced a, a, a whole a, a shift in liturgical law uh, beginning around the time of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, up to that point, he said that the understanding of liturgical law had, uh, was best expressed by Pius XII of Mediator Dei, that you had doctrine, discipline, and ceremonies, and that these things were uh, intimately related. There's the old saying that the law of praying is the law of believing, and also vice versa uh, to a large extent. So the idea was that in the Mass you have uh, doctrines, uh, the doctrines and the truths of the Catholic faith uh, expressed. So that's your doctrine part of it. The second part is is the uh, discipline, in other words, the regulation by uh, liturgical law, by the supreme authority of the Church, that takes care of the third thing, which is uh, ceremonies. 
So these, these things are seen as uh, interrelated. So for that reason, you had um, uh, a, a very, very high degree of regulation in the traditional liturgy. You had uh, a code of, of uh, rubrics, a, ser- a series of rubrics uh, in the front of the missal that told the priest exactly what he was to do at, at uh, uh, this point of the Mass and that point of the Mass. There were all sorts of regulations, precise regulations about the calendar, what um, uh, what uh, Mass formularies you could use, say, for votive Masses or for a Saint's Day. So this was, was regulated... Um, by the Missal, and then after the Council of Trent, uh, the Church established the Congregation of Rites, and the purpose of the Congregation of Rites, it was a, a Roman legal and administrative body under the Pope, was to interpret these rules or these, these rubrics. So you would have, uh, or you had a, a whole series of, of uh, decisions interpreting these uh, uh, these rubrics, these rules for governing the celebration of Mass. And so these, these filled actually several volumes. So the Church had this, this great desire to protect the doctrinal content of, the, uh, of her rites. So that particular uh, paradigm, as it were, doctrine, discipline, and ceremonies, uh, existed uh, up to around the time of uh, the Second uh, Vatican Council. And then uh, Rick Satter said that you start to see a shift where you, uh, instead of uh, being told uh, what to do, instead of this regulation, uh, uh, the regulation of the liturgy, there's a shift away from that towards options, and uh, you may do this if you want. You have several options to uh, choose from. Certain parts of the liturgy are uh, deregulated by uh, central authority. Uh, You don't have to use certain mass formularies. Uh, You can, say, substitute. uh, If we take one example, um, the introit of the traditional mass is, is fixed, uh, for a particular feast day or for a particular votive mass. Uh, you're given the, the text, there are no options for that. Whereas in the uh, Novus Ordo, you have a whole, in the new liturgical system, you have a whole series of options. So you have this whole, um, uh, the, the, this whole framework of uh, liturgical regulation uh, gradually chipped away at and um, uh, bit by bit taken apart in the liturgical reform. Mm. Well, I think we have to talk now about something that is a central subject of this chapter, and some of our listeners may be familiar with this um, with this thing, which is called the GI or the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, which I've uh, in your chapter. You refer to it as a GI. Of course, I always saw it uh, by the acronym of GERM, which might be more appropriate. But you know, so, or uh, uh, I mean, some people some people might say upper GI and lower GI. Very, yeah, quite yeah. possibly. Uh, so now, some of our listeners might be familiar with this, particularly with uh, you know the recent changes in the Novus Ordo under Benedict and everything. So, could you could you talk a little bit about? Uh, 
what exactly the general instruction of the Roman Missal uh, it was as it came out in, in 1970. Okay. Um, well, as we mentioned in, in the previous missile, you had a code of rubrics and, and um, uh, directions in the front of the missile that told the priest what to do. The, um, when the new mass, the new order of mass came out uh, in 1969, uh, that was the first part of the new missile, First, the order of mass came out, and then uh, eventually, all of, eventually, as it were, the propers of the mass came out in in, in a missile in, in 1970. Uh, in the front of uh, both documents, there uh, was, or both books, there's a document called the General Instruction on the Roman Missal. The uh, idea behind this particular document was that it was going to give you uh, certain directions for uh, how the Mass should be celebrated. Uh, and it was going to give you a, uh, it was going to explain to you the different, uh, the purposes of the different parts of the Mass uh, as, uh, as they appeared in the liturgical reform. And over and above that, it was going to give you uh, the uh, theology, uh, the theology behind this new order of mass. So it, it had all of these these different uh, these different purposes. So it, it was a, a represented a, a substantial shift from what preceded the um, old order of mass. Uh, which did not talk about theological principles or or um, the uh, or explain the different parts of the rite, but it simply told you what to do. And so there was the brainchild. Oh, I'm sorry, good father. Yeah. So this this was was uh, a shift. They're talking about purposes and uh, and theology and options. Okay. And this was the brainchild of concilium, correct? Yes, and Concilium, remember, was the um, uh, Vatican body that was charged with uh, creating the new um, the new order of the Mass. So instead mm -hmm. of having code of rubrics, this is what you had. Hmm. So, as you said, you know, before Vatican II, this sort of manual didn't exist because it was assuming that the you know the priest did not need an instruction because they would have received that instruction in the seminary about the theology behind the mass. Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And and so, the uh, an, another reason actually for the uh, for formulating this uh, with. Uh, instruction and, and with doctrinal principles was that since it, it did not uh, regulate the liturgy to the extent that the old rubrics did, the idea was, well, if you understand these particular ideas, then you might understand correctly how to perform uh, this, um, uh, this new rite of the Mass. Okay. I'd like to also point out. to... 
Yeah, I'd like to point our listeners to that from now on throughout the episode, we're just going to call it you know, the GI. There's no point in keep saying you know, general instruction of the Roman Missal. It's just going to be easier for the show to move forward. So I think before we move into uh, the first part here, if you could quickly revisit it again, maybe some of our listeners are just catching the show for the very first time at this episode. Maybe you could quickly explain again what liturgical laws, uh, a.k.a. You know, rubrics, are and why they're so important to the Mass. All right, the... the origin of the term uh, rubrics is uh, from the Latin word for red. And the, uh, the rubrics refer to the instructions uh, for uh, the different ceremonial actions the priest is supposed to perform uh, during the course of Mass. So the texts that the priest is supposed to recite are printed in black and the different directions, uh, you bow here, make a sign of the cross here, um, uh, say this particular prayer, those are rubrics and those are printed in, those are printed in, in red. So that's the, uh, that's the uh, origin of the word and that's the source of the distinction. Okay. Yeah, thank you, because I think that, you know, this is going to be a central theme to our, to our listeners understanding this, this, this theological blueprint of the new Mass as laid out in the GI. So, okay, so let's go on to here to the first part of the program, which uh, sort of goes along with the subsection of this chapter called Radically Redefining the Definition of the Mass and Turning it into an Assembly. Um, this is this is something that um, is very prevalent in Novus Ordo, is that, and, and certainly from my days there, it was it was always presented to you know, the pew sitters, the people in the peanut gallery, that <laughs> that you know now the assembly consti- uh, the, uh, the assembly constitutes the mass. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about the assembly theology and why this is no accident and how really it changes the very essence of the mass itself. Okay. Well, I mean, the when you uh, speak in terms of Catholic theology. Uh, what the meaning of the Mass is, is uh, supposed to be. It's supposed to be the unbloody sacrifice of the new law. And then uh, in this unbloody sacrifice, uh, Christ's body and blood are offered uh, under the species of, of bread and wine by a priest to God. And, and this has different uh, purposes to glorify the most blessed trinity and to apply to us the uh, merits of the sacrifice of the cross so that's the traditional understanding of what the essence of the mass is what was done in the general instruction as was done with uh, so many aspects of the post-vatican II uh, changes is that the definitions were changed. So in the GI, uh, the 1969 GI, uh, there's a definition of the Mass in Article 7 of the GI, and uh, it speaks of uh, the Lord's Supper or Mass is the sacred assembly or gathering together, you could say, of the people of God with a priest presiding to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. For this reason, Christ's promise applies supremely to such a local gathering of the church where two or three come together in my name, there am I in uh, their midst. So you get this uh, strikingly odd and unusual definition of the Mass that 
first of all, instead of talking about the Mass, you talk about the chain of Domini. You talk about the Lord's Supper. Now, yeah, sure, the, the, the Mass is, the, the, is indeed the chain of Domini, but to start with that uh, is a, uh, that's the, um, that should send the antenna up right away because that's the, the, the term commonly used all the time by Protestants. Then they say that uh, it's an assembly, so no longer specifically is it a sacrifice. Then you have this this um, concept, the Vatican II concept, actually predates Vatican II, that the people of God are offering it. Uh, you have this gathering together. The priest is referred to as the presider uh, over this assembly, which celebrates this. And it's called the Memorial of the Lord. So all of these, these there's, there's a shift in terms, there's a shift in this uh, definition that you get. And that's something quite intentional because I'm, it's not uh, theological rocket science to figure out in terms of traditional Catholic theology what a correct definition of Mass is. But this was written with... Uh, the idea of a theological shift in mind. Hmm. So for our listeners, uh, Father just read the definition as laid under the GI of the new Mass, but before we talk about sort of comparing and contrasting here, I think it would be helpful to read to the listeners out of Father's book here on page 105 what the definition of the old Mass was, or the, you know, the, the traditional Latin Mass, or just the Mass. And, and you write, here is the typical definition based on the teaching of the Council of Trent and formulated in the language of traditional Thomistic theology. Quote, the unbloody sacrifice of the new law in which the body and blood of Christ under the species of bread and wine by a mystical immolation are offered by a legitimate minister of Christ to God in order to acknowledge his supreme dominion and to apply to us the merits of the sacrifice of the cross. Unquote. So, you know, there may be no more stark of a contrast between the old and the new than just by the definitions themselves. I mean, that is a strikingly different definition. So, with that in mind, Father, I'd like you to, to, to explain to us three things, and, and we'll start with point one. Um, why the language of the definition of the traditional Latin Mass runs afoul of the Vatican II uh, guiding principles of ecumenism and modernism? That's, that's question one. Well, uh, everything in in the definition that you read uh, uh, sets off uh, different um, ecumenical alarms and modernist alarms. Okay, so you you have the idea of it as an unbloody sacrifice, which is not acceptable to Protestants, and the uh, uh, body and blood of Christ uh, are offered. Right uh, by an immolation, and there's that sacrificial language which the um, uh, Protestants object to, uh, and uh, you have so that's that's loaded language from an ecumenical point of view. Then, from the point of view of of modernism, the idea is with modernism is that you make everything vague, and you don't want to really talk about the essence of things. Uh, you want to talk about the development of, of uh, dogma from generation to generation, how things constantly change, how we have a better idea now than we ever did before, 
of uh, a correct understanding of the mass, how we've surpassed these older ideas. So uh, all of that uh, is you've got sacrifice uh, that uh, offends the notions of ecumenism on one hand, and you've got uh, this amount of precision that um, uh, offends the modernists, as it were, uh, on the other hand. So you have to uh, get around that definition. You have to surpass it, as the modernists say. Okay. So the second question that I would have on this is this is going right to this matter of this this, uh, this Eucharistic assembly. Now, the notion of the Eucharistic assembly is is the central theme of our show tonight, and I want to know why this terminology is completely incompatible with the old definition. Well, because it obscures what it really is. Uh, the essence of the Mass is, is, is uh, sacrifice. And uh, what the modernists did is substitute something else for uh, the essence of what the, the Mass is, this idea of an uh, assembly. We um, saw, we may have talked about this uh, in an earlier show, but this is the, this was the theology again of this Louis Bouillet, this modernist in the liturgical movement. And his his uh, idea of uh, the Mass was uh, based on the Jewish idea of uh, an assembly in the Old Testament called Together by God. So uh, this was incorporated, this particular idea was incorporated uh, into this uh, uh, new definition in order to obscure and to surpass the old definition. So that's, that's, um, that's where it came from. Okay. You also write uh, in this section of the book that this, uh, this whole notion of assembly is a direct and deliberate effort to match the existentialist theology of Vatican II. Now, before you explain why that is, perhaps for our listeners who aren't familiar with what existentialist theology is, maybe you could give just a little quick working definition of that and then explain why it's a why it's a oh, it's, match it's, that. it's this crazy modern philosophy where you uh, do not really talk about the... Um, uh, you don't arrive at an understanding of, of um, reality and of the truths of the faith by exploring the essences of things, like what makes a thing to be what it is, but rather you look at it and you see how you think it exists. And uh, what you see is what you get. You know, the, they used to say that about the early computer displays, WYSIWYG. And so that, mm-hmm. I suppose, is the... Uh, if you wanted to abbreviate the underlying principle of existential uh, theolo- existentialist philosophy or theology, it's WYSIWYG. Mm-hmm. So, so why is this notion, as you say, a, del- a direct and deliberate effort to match the existentialist theology of Vatican II? Well, the uh, first of all. Uh, as we said above, it gets you around the essential definition uh, on the basis of um, uh, serving the ends of ecumenism and modernism. So that's one one advantage of it. Uh, Then, uh, secondly, in terms of modernism itself, it um, 
modernism, remember, at the root of it, denies any distinction between the natural and supernatural order. So if you have the WYSIWYG uh, uh, approach to the Mass, well, what you see is what you get. And when uh, you go to Mass, what do you see? You see an assembly. Mm-hmm. And this you make the uh, underlying um, uh, understanding of the Mass. And in so doing, you also make it very uh, acceptable to the false um, uh, theology of, of um uh, rather the the the, the um, uh, outlook that modern man has, where the, the idea of of uh, supernatural or something operating in the order of grace and God's revelation, well, that doesn't really speak too much to him. But if you say that we have an assembly and this assembly animates us, and we have these religious feelings that arise from the assembly, modern man can understand that. Hmm. So okay. all of this, this stuff is in the background. Hmm. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network, sponsored by Roman Catholic Archive. I'm Justin Soder, your host, and this evening I'm joined by Father Anthony Chicada, author of the book Work of Human Hands. And so far we have just begun diving into this uh, notion of assembly, and we're going to be covering the entire show tonight on this topic. We'd like to remind you, The Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. If you're listening to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us ratings and reviews. It helps those looking for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our work. All right, so Father, um, let's move in here uh, to the essential changes in the theology of the Mass. And I, and I, would, I would urge our listeners that if, if, if you haven't really paid uh, undivided attention, this is, this is really the nuts and bolts, uh, the theological engineering plans, if you will, uh, the very foundation of what the new Mass is built upon. And there are four, as Father describes in his book, irreducible elements. And we're going to talk about those four elements. Okay? And the first one we're going to talk about which I'm sure all of us who have spent any time in the Novus Ordo have had to endure, and that was the concept as the Mass as a meal. Uh, it is something I heard all the time, constantly heard this, the meal, the banquet, the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, the table, the nourishment of the Lord's Supper, the food of the meal, on and on. I mean, you, know, you name whatever little uh, you know, statement that you know, if they want to throw out there, anything but sacrifice. So let's talk about this, the Mass as a meal, Father. Let's talk about this word usage of meal in the GI as it defines it and why it not only satisfies the existentialist modern theology, but it actually reflects that in the Novus Ordo Mass. Yeah, the, um, again, first of all, it's WYSIWYG, again, because what you see is what you get. Uh, you go into one of these assemblies, and it looks like they are eating meals, so therefore it is a meal. Now, this, uh, uh, it is true to speak of the Mass as the, uh, the Eucharistic banquet, that is one part or one aspect uh, of the Mass. And the banquet part of the Mass is the communion part of the Mass. And that is preceded by the uh, offertory of the Mass and by the canon of the Mass and the consecration. And the um, Eucharistic banquet part of the Mass is, is, is uh, that third principal part. So it's correct to say that, but uh, what you have in the theology of the general instruction 
is this relentless emphasis on so you have first you have assembly and then you have this meal idea and this language pervades and recurs throughout the uh, throughout the whole uh, general instruction and i give us uh, citations for this in my book so it's a question of of um, you make this like a, a dominant uh, a dominant feature of the uh, theology that you present in the general instruction. And this might be a good time to plug listeners to go buy your book, because, because we're, we are covering just the keynote points here, but this is a fantastic chapter. Uh, I, was, uh, I, was quite, uh, uh, I was quite taken in to read this chapter, because there is just so much information given in it. So I would tell our listeners that, hey, we're just you know, skimming the topics. Like we said in our Zero show back last year, we're not reading the book for you. We're just talking about like, you know, the real heavy points here. So let's move on to the, the second of the, four irreducible, of the four irreducible elements, which you say, which is the, the masses of sacrifice. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying, Father, before you say this, this is where, and I've heard this you know, many times before, where the defenders of the Novus Ordo will, will sort of tell Trad, hey, gotcha, see? See, the word sacrifice is still there, therefore the theology is intact in the Mass. So you trad need to be quiet. You know, this, is a, you know, this is a fine Mass. You know, it represents the idea of sacrifice because it says it. But, Father, is it? How does, how does the GI neutralize this idea of sacrifice? Well, what, uh, what is done is that um, when in those uh, paragraphs of the GI that speak about the sacrificial aspects of the Mass, then uh, invariably, almost invariably, you have meal imagery that goes along with it. And the idea is that it, it is supposed to neutralize or offset the uh, concentrating on the traditional understanding of the Mass as a sacrifice. So that's one way that the... Um, those who formulated the general instruction uh, tried to offset and tried to undercut this the, the essential uh, point about the nature of the mass. The other thing that is uh, quite striking is that while uh, there is language that in the general instruction that mentions sacrifice, none of it mentions the Mass as a sacrifice of propitiation. That is to say, a sacrifice that's offered to um, make satisfaction for sin. And mm. this is, is what historians call one of the great stumbling blocks of the Protestant revolt, that you had, had uh, people like Luther, Calvin, and Cramner, who um, the leaders of, of, of the Protestant revolt who might admit that, yes, in the Lord's Supper, somehow there is an element of sacrifice. But if you said sacrifice of propitiation, they, that they would not accept. That they would not accept. So this idea fundamentally disappears from the general instruction. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next of, uh, this is the third of the fourth irreducible elements is the Mass's Thanksgiving. And you point out in the book that there's really not much here to nitpick, correct? No, the, because the, essential, the idea of, of Mass and Eucharist, the very word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. So that's not, that's not um, problematic in Catholic theology. 
and uh, even in in uh, uh, Protestant and modernist theology, uh, they admit that uh, or uh, emphasize, in fact, that there's this idea of thanksgiving. So that's no problem. It's not a problem passage. Okay. The fourth one of the uh, of the four irreducible elements is the idea of the mass as a memorial. Now. Um, you also say this was the perfect tool uh, for the ecumenical blurring of essential doctrinal differences in Protestant and Catholic theology. And, of course, I think the GI would certainly agree with you because the GI says the memorial, or the term uh, memorial, is one of the most precious terms it brings to light. So how does the GI seize on this, and why was this deliberate? Well, because of the Protestants as well... Um, would uh, uh, consider the Lord's Supper to uh, be a, a memorial. So it is a term that is uh, uh, common to Catholic theology and to heretical theology as well. So uh, you use the same uh, term, but there actually there are different. Uh, the, the understandings are different when it comes to uh, the Catholic theology of the Mass, the standard Catholic theology of the Mass, is it's a Mass is a memorial because it's first a sacrificial act. A- and the memorial aspect of it derives uh, from that. But in the new theology, uh, this is... Um, uh, sort of twisted and, and turned around that you first have the idea of uh, a memorial and the Mass is, is, is not uh, defined in terms of its, its essence or its nature as uh, a sacrifice. Rather, you start with the, the notion of memorial. So the whole idea is flipped. It's, it's, it's uh, turned on its head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was uh, one of the things I remember back from my days, and you know, you'd usually have you know the female cantor who got there right before uh, the Novus Ordo began, and they would start they would start you know mixing and matching these terms like you know our presider this morning for for our memorial is blah blah blah, and then you would be treated to something you know by Dan Schutte like gather us in, and and uh, you know so mm-hmm. they would you know they would take all these terms and mix and match them and put them together to say well is this mass or is this memorial or is it a celebration or is it a banquet you know what is this I mean I you know, those those terms were used interchangeably so you can see how these four things have have you know really been used to blur everything so and uh, the, and uh, these these terms were the uh, key terms that kept uh, uh, kept on popping up, not only in in uh, you know uh, popular discourse by the lady lector or the the, the lady commentators, but uh, in uh, books on the uh, theology behind the new mass, uh, in the courses that were given to priests in the seminary, in the different manuals on how to. Uh, uh, celebrate the new mass. So this, uh, these ideas did not simply remain um, as dead ideas in the front of a book. Rather, they they were um, diffused very very widely uh, throughout the uh, course of the liturgical reform. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we move on to the next subsection, which is. Um, the discussion on Christ's presence at the Mass and, and how it's understood. 
Now, I would venture to say that it's not a stretch to say that most people that are are stuck in the Novus Ordo really have no idea what Christ's presence is at the Mass. They, they, you know, you could you could line up five or ten people and ask them this very question, and you would probably get five or ten colorfully and distinctly different answers. So, uh, perhaps, Father, first you could talk broadly about the traditional understanding of the presence of Christ at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass versus the new understanding. Well, the, the uh, you know, put simply, after the consecration, our Lord is, is present body, blood, soul, and divinity under the, the, the species of bread or wine, and that's uh, referred to as transubstantiation. And that's clear that's in, uh, you know, kids learn that in the catechism in, in fourth or fifth grade, and, and they learn that it's not... Uh, simply a symbol of Christ, but that our Lord is really and substantially present uh, uh, present there under the, the, the species of bread and wine. So uh, that's a fundamental um, part of Catholic teaching, of, of uh, Catholic doctrine. So, you know, you could uh, find that anywhere before Vatican II. But uh, the... Uh, Protestants rejected this idea uh, because it tied the Mass in with uh, uh, being uh, work, and, and works were uh, considered to be of no use in, in our, our salvation. And uh, the modernists um, rejected this idea because they rejected the uh, traditional understanding of, of, of uh, uh, Catholic theology about the real and substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So uh, the idea of transubstantiation and Christ's presence there had to go. Uh, you had to have some sort of presence, so they started to uh, substitute other ideas for it. Mm-hmm. And this sort of ties back to our to our definitional differences, where we talked about the, this idea of you know the assembly of the people of God, of you know where you know, were two or more you know, gathered in my presence, there I am in their midst, which 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 takes away from the central idea of what is happening at the altar. Uh, yes, that's the idea, and mm-hmm. uh, that uh, when uh, you would speak to someone who is educated in traditional Catholic theology in the catechism, uh, you'd ask him, how's, president, how's Christ president Mass? Well, the person is going to say, well, he's uh, present under the appearances of red and white. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, uh, that's, that's when we talk about Christ being president Mass, that's what we mean. But with the new definition, with uh, you don't get that anymore. The idea is, is that Christ is, you know, present in the assembly, or he's present in his word, or in something else, and oh, maybe in the bread and wine. <laughs> right. So it's uh, it's a different, um, uh, completely different understanding uh, of uh, the real presence of Christ. Mm-hmm. So now we move back to one of our usual suspects, which Father said earlier that we've discussed in episodes one, two, I believe, and three. I think his I think his name has been here from the very from the very get go, as we would say, Louis Bouillet, mm-hmm. and he had this idea of uh, the denomination of presences, plural, of of our Lord at Mass. 
So, Father, perhaps you could talk about uh, Boyer's uh, denomination of presence and, and how it really destroys the traditional understanding of the real presence. So this goes back to his, his book, Liturgical Piety, which actually was very far from pious, in uh, 1954. And in this book, he uh, proposed the underlying and underlying definition of the Mass based on the Jewish assembly concept, the Koheleth or something in the Old Testament. So that uh, Christ was present there uh, somehow in the assembly. He was uh, present in his word uh, when Scripture was proclaimed. That was another presence that... Uh, Bouillet talked about, that he was present in uh, the uh, priest who uh, uh, offered the Mass and who presided over it, and in the Eucharist as well. So he had, had several different presences that he came up with. Now, these ideas uh, of Bouillet resurface in the 1969 General Instruction which shouldn't surprise us because he was involved in writing it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, how does... Paul VI came up with his, his, uh, his Mysterium Fide. Okay? Now, mm-hmm. anyone who's been to a Novus Ordo Mass will certainly know uh, that this is something central uh, in the Mass. You know, uh, certainly, the, uh, uh, after the consecration, it's, you know, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Um, how does the real presence versus Paul VI's uh, you know, Mysterium Fide contribute to this destruction? I mean, how, uh, I think I've kind of described how it manifests itself in the Nova Sorda Mass, but perhaps you could maybe dig a bit deeper into that. I mean, how does this contribute really to the, to the destruction of the understanding of the real presence? Okay, uh, uh, first I have to say that um, this about the document, that uh, when it came out in 65 or 66, something like that, um, mm-hmm. uh, the... Um, uh, people who were conservative, those people who were suspicious about, or, or who uh, suspicious about uh, different aspects of the liturgical reform, about the new theology, really um, rejoiced at this particular document, because Paul VI um, uh, actually talked about. Um, uh, a couple of, of, of the current theological ideas uh, at that time, some of which I actually was, was uh, taught by my professors. Uh, instead of transubstantiation, they would talk about the transfinalization of the bread and wine on the altar. In other words, they, they're, they're, the purpose of them is um, uh, changed or is, is uh, converted. Okay, that was one of the ideas was trans, uh, transfinalization. So um, there, there were a couple of, of um, ideas like this floating around. So Paul VI uh, said that these particular ideas were not uh, acceptable. And he talked about uh, the dogma of transubstantiation uh, in Mysterium Fide. However, in the best Paul VI fashion, uh, what he uh, gave with one hand, he took away with the other. Uh, for uh, was in this encyclical Mysterium Fide that he talks about these different presences um, of Christ in the assembly, Christ in his word, 
uh, in the Eucharist and the person of the priest, he picks these ideas of Louis Bouillet up and puts them into this, this document. Uh, this is not surprising because in, when he was Archbishop of Milan, he uh, spoke very, very favorably of uh, Louis Bouillet's writings when he uh, issued a pastoral letter to the, the people of, uh, of Milan about the liturgy. So he picked up these ideas of, of uh, Bouillet and these different presences and put them in to this uh, encyclical, which so many people, uh, this encyclical, which so many people took as a defense of traditional doctrine. But it ended up, it turns out, sowing further the seeds of the revolution, which is what he intended. So, so understanding that, Father, let's let's talk about the laity and. I mean, what does this do actually to the laity? I mean, what are the what are the practical and real effects that this does to the laity? Well, I, the um, first of all, there's the language of it. Okay, now you you talked about how this was um, these terms of meal and memorial and assembly, how how these things were uh, used. So, of course, people uh, people pick that up. And especially since in the modern catechism programs, they are not given, uh, they don't memorize definitions. And they certainly don't memorize the, the traditional uh, definitions of, uh, that have to do, let's say, with the Eucharist. So there's, as far as the, generally speaking, as far as the discourse, uh, and uh, uh, these ideas are floated around. And then uh, this, secondly, naturally, this affects the way that the Mass is celebrated. That if you um, decide that um, the primary and underlying presence of Christ is in the assembly, well, naturally, the way of, of, uh, that you conduct your worship is going to reflect that. You're going to want to build the solidarity of uh, the people one with another. So you end up with a horizontalized liturgy. So this 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 uh, affects how um, and this further reinforces these ideas and affects people's uh, perception of the mass. You then you get to a point where the uh, people then uh, come to look upon the uh, presence of, of uh, Christ in the Eucharist as uh, just simply another presence and something symbolic as well because he's, he's symbolically present uh, in the assembly. So all of these, the, the, um, uh, from this, this uh, uh, little complex of, of bad ideas, all sorts of bad effects flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's fair to say too that I mean, uh, you, know, you mentioned you know, the horizontal aspect instead of you know the vertical aspect, and and yeah, I think you know this this notion of assembly certain uh, certainly fosters the the understanding of this 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 horizontalism. But I would say, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Father, but I I mean I think this essentially leads. Uh, it leads the laity to ignore transubstantiation altogether. I mean, which naturally leads to the poll numbers we see. You know, when we do Francis watching, uh, uh, Bishop Sanborn is he's constantly quoting you know the polls, talking about quote unquote Catholics denying the real presence. Well, it's it's really no surprise when this is this is the understanding that you know they're being fed. 
sure and the the uh, you know the old saying is is that ideas have consequences and mm-hmm. these bad ideas had uh, have bad consequences in the uh, the effect and the symbolism and the actions and the words of uh, the sacred liturgy and since the liturgy is is the primary uh, means by which uh, Catholics have uh, a contact with their faith and sort of see the faith lived out, then naturally this is going to have an adverse effect. So mm-hmm. the, the, those poll numbers that he talks about, that is a, a, re- a reflection of that. People don't read theological journals. They, uh, your average Catholic, he just goes to Mass. And that is how you can... Uh, changes faith, and that's something that we see as the uh, we see as the result of it. You know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing that you talk about under uh, under the subsection of Christ's presence at the mass is this uh, this idea of equalizing the listening of Scripture with uh, receiving Holy Communion. And just you know, before you get into that, I would say that this may be one of the largest. Um, uh, continuing things that was being harped on by the Novus Ordo priest. This was huge, huge when I was in my Novus Ordo days. Was, and, and so many examples you know, I could go into, but for sake of brevity, I won't do it. But you know, essentially the Novus Ordo priest was saying all the time that the quote-unquote liturgy of the Word, uh, you know, which is you know, distinctively different from the liturgy of the Eucharist in the New Mass, as being equally efficacious as approaching the Lord's table. And, of course, we were filled, too, with those buzzwords like nourishment, you know, uh, it, things like sacramental nourishment of the Lord's Word. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, Father, about the equalizing here of Scripture with receiving Holy Communion in, in the Novus Ordo. What you had in, in uh, the old Mass was the division between the Mass of the Catechumens, the first part which uh, contained scripture, uh, the, the uh, scriptural part of the Mass, and then you had the Mass of the Faithful, which uh, concerned the elements of the having to do with the sacrifice. You had an offertory, you had the consecration, and you had the uh, uh, communion. So uh, the uh, those two parts of the mass, as it were, were not seen as uh, equal, uh, since the mass was defined uh, primarily as uh, first and foremost as a sacrifice. It was the, uh, the the sacrificial part of it that was seen as more important. What happened <coughs> in the liturgical reforms and in the theology that followed from that is that the um, uh, scripture readings were put on the same level as the um, uh, what had formerly been the sacrificial part of the mass, so they were equated and tied in with this was this these uh, all these ideas of the different presences of Christ you know it's in the assembly he's in the word he's present in the priest he's present in in uh, uh, the uh, the Eucharist so it's like the inflation of currency that all of a sudden, uh, you know, everything is a presence. So you mm-hmm. get to a point where everything is a presence and nothing is a presence. And the term uh, essentially becomes uh, uh, vague as it's supposed to become. So 
But the the idea of this 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 equating the two liturgy of the word liturgy of the Eucharist and putting them on the same level is another uh, key to understanding the liturgical reform. It was Vatican mm-hmm. II that um, uh, actually that did this. Uh, the that for the, uh, for the first time in some sort of official document spoke about the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, I almost feel dirty even saying this, but it, you know, it's essentially like you're receiving communion. That's just another part of the whole show. Well, it's another presence, right? Shaking right, hands right. with another member of the assembly is, is presence. And, right, right. Uh, listening to um, uh, uh, you know, someone read the scripture reading is another presence. And you had had uh, um, uh, commentaries of the liturgists. Uh, one was a Father uh, Kenneth Smits, uh, who was a Capuchin actually from Milwaukee, um, and uh, I knew him. He was a uh, total loony. Uh, it's absolutely crazy ideas and uh, uh, crazy liturgical ideas. In any event, he wrote an article uh, talking about the different presences of Christ, saying that, well, what we should do at the beginning of the Mass is uh, uh, incense the assembly, because that's the fundamental underlying presence of Christ there in the people. So mm-hmm. uh, before we incense anything else, it should be the people first. Mm. Okay. So that uh, that has uh, that has an effect. Those ideas have uh, uh, have an effect. You know, the handshake before communion, the way that 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 is delivered, uh, that's um, telegraphing to you the importance of the uh, 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 assembly. You know, at that point, mm-hmm. you should be preparing yourself to receive, you know, our Lord, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Instead, you're shaking someone's hand next to you. Or holding their hand. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, anyway, so before we move to the, the next part here, I'd like to remind our listeners that you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network, sponsored by Roman Catholic Archive. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening I'm joined by Father Anthony Chicada. And today we've been discussing Chapter 5 of Father's book, Work of Human Hands, and we've covered uh, you know, a general overview. We've talked about the, uh, the redefining of the Mass as uh, you know, the assembly. We have talked about the essential changes in the theology of the Mass, focusing on what Father called the four irreducible elements, the Mass is the meal, the Mass is a sacrifice, the Mass is Thanksgiving, and the Mass is a memorial. Uh, we've also talked about Christ's presence at Mass. Um, we'd like to remind you, Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mailatruerestoration.org. So, Father, we're going to move to the next part here now, the next subsection, and it's entitled, What Does the Mass Represent? And I think this is very important to emphasize, represent. So, perhaps, Father, you could talk about uh, the fact that heretics have always tried to destroy the understanding of what the Mass represents. Maybe you could go into that a little bit. Yeah, the um, classic, your, your, your standard Protestantism uh, looks uh, upon what they would call as the Lord's Supper as, as, as something that uh, is performed primarily to stir up 
faith in us and, and to achieve a, some sort of a, a conversion uh, experience where we throw ourselves on the Lord, as it were. But the Catholic teaching from the Council of Trent is that what, what the Mass represents at our altar is essentially the sacrifice of the cross. Uh, and uh, that is, is, is um, how our Lord intended it. Uh, Christ is the uh, is uh, being offered as the sacrifice and is the priest, and that uh, the difference between what occurs at, at the sacrifice that uh, occurs at Mass and what occurred at Calvary is is that the uh, former is an unbloody sacrifice; the latter was the original bloody sacrifice of our blessed Lord. So. You, uh, this was the Catholic understanding of what was uh, represented. The Protestant idea was simply a um, uh, something that that stirs up this this uh, uh, faith in us. Okay, so let's move in here to more of the GI because the GI is 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 certainly deeply at play here when it talks about the Last Supper and how it replaces the sacrifice of the cross. Yeah, the um, the language is intentionally convoluted and bizarre in the general instruction. First of all, they talk about the Last Supper. Then they say the Last Supper becomes continually present in the church, rather than to say that the Mass represents and commemorates the sacrifice of the cross. Instead, it's the Last Supper. And that is a um, uh, a reformulation of traditional Catholic teaching. And then the other uh, passage that is, is truly bizarre is uh, uh, paragraph 55D, which uh, says that the narration of institution... Uh, wherein, by the words and actions of Christ, the Last Supper is made present. So it says that the narration of the institution is made present. Now, this is completely um, convoluted, and uh, intentionally so. The phrase, nar- narration of institution, is um, you, was used primarily in Protestant theology to um, emphasize the fact that the consecration of the bread and wine do not take place, but rather the priest simply narrates Christ instituting the Eucharist. So what you get in the general instruction is this idea that, well, uh, what's made present is the narration of the institution, which is um, a, a uh, something that uh, intentionally undermines and does an end run around uh, traditional Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. So, I think this is this is a good time as ever just to move into the the question of who offers mass, and this this is certainly uh, expounding more on the assembly idea because it's, it's it's somehow empowering the people to make themselves believe that they are the ones that it takes the priest and the people to offer the mass now. Going back to one of our suspects, I believe, believe this was in the second episode that we did, Father, on Study Group 10. You, you went into a, a pretty long discourse about who Study Group 10 was and what they were all about. So a gentleman named Patino, and he had this idea about uh, the people offering Mass, and, and you say this is heresy, and why is that, Father? 
what um, someone like Patino, and there are many like him, uh, do is they uh, make the, the uh, assembled people uh, something is, uh, essential to the to the offering of mass. That it is. Uh, Instead of the idea that the, the priest standing there in the presence of Christ uh, offering uh, the Mass, this is turned into some sort of an action of uh, God's people, where the, the, the people truly uh, uh, have a truly priestly function, a truly uh, uh, priestly role. So everything is, is turned around. It's turned around and uh, turned upside down. So, uh, because the, the uh, pious the twelve said that uh, you know, in no way are the people is the presence of the people necessary for the celebration of mass. But this mm-hmm. would be very much uh, this would be an idea that would be um, very consonant with uh, modernism with the theology of someone like, like uh, Patino, and also with the, uh, the Protestant understanding of the Lord's Supper, because you would not, it, it would not be um, uh, efficacious uh, if uh, Protestants would not consider the Last Supper worth anything if the priest uh, or if, if their minister simply performed it on his own. So mm-hmm. uh, this uh, this is tied into all sorts of theological horrors, as it were. So the, I remember the, the assembly then becomes a, uh, becomes the properly speaking the celebrant of the mass. Again, if you look at, at um, uh, if you talk with anyone in the uh, who's uh, had a, a traditional formation of the catechism, who celebrates the mass? Well. The priest celebrates the Mass, and he stands there in the presence of Christ, and uh, we join ourselves to what he does uh, at the Mass, and jo- thus join ourselves to Christ. So that's something that's very clear. But uh, here, that was overturned. Yeah, I was just getting ready to say, and, and I think you know you put a you put a nice. Uh, you know, clarification on that. You know, I've, you know, I've spoken with people and say, well, you know, the people do offer mass, you know, with the priest. I say, yeah, but that's not what this says. You know, certainly you, know, you should, you know, you should be, you know, um, you should be in mass and you should be attentive and you should be, you know, trying to, you know, unite your offerings in with the priest. But this doesn't mean you're offering the mass. Precisely. That's precisely the point. That's precisely right. the point. You join yourself with him. And to right. uh, uh, you know obtain the merits from the mass, you join yourself to the, uh, for the priest. You also say in the section, Father, that the GI inspired an uh, an entire generation of liturgists to promote the idea that the people present are the ones celebrating mass. And I don't think that's very hard for us to see now, particularly those who have had to endure the Novus Ordo, and by the grace of God, you know. Got out of it. I would. I would think everybody understands this. And it was something that was uh, imparted to us uh, over and over uh, in the courses that we had in the modernist seminary and uh, during the course of the uh, different celebrations uh, of mass, according to the the, uh, the change rites that uh, that we had. So it was was a. Uh, something was was very very real 
in the sense that um, it was emphasized uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. Next in the section that, that that I wanted to cover was uh, to have you go over the this this entire priest presider concept. Uh, you know, one who presides over an assembly, and that it's that's really incompatible with the traditional understanding of the priesthood. And just just as a quick note, you know, we were also talking about this priest show, and I said, you know, I, this is this is just another worn out war horse phrase in the Novus Ordo. Um, you know, from my days back in the Novus Ordo. Uh, it was so common to to hear people introduce someone to say a family member that was you know a sort of priest, and he would say, "Oh, this was this was our presider at mass today," and not this is this is my priest. This was our presider. So this has really become saturated in people's minds. Could you talk a little bit about why this is incompatible? Well, this is tied in with the the idea that the people offer the mass and the priest. Uh, presides over it. So the understanding behind it is that the assembled people uh, are the primary actor, as it were, uh, affecting what is going on at this this um, uh, assembly supper. The priest uh, is uh, becomes a, a leader over the assembly. The assembly performs the act. He directs the uh, assembly and keeps good order. If you think of of the uh, uh, the idea of presider or of, of uh, uh, president that the United States Senate um, that it's it's Biden heaven help us who presides over it um, but uh, the real action is uh, the legislative action is performed by the Senate itself and Biden has he's like a traffic cop and he only has a uh, limited uh, limited role. So by using this 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 word presider, this is the um, uh, image and the idea that is being used to uh, undercut the idea of the sacrificing priesthood and the priest as the uh, together with Christ as the primary uh, actor, as it were at uh, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So the, the, there's all of this this change of, of jargon that um, uh, is meant to uh, change the faith of the people and to change the way that uh, worship is conducted. And it did. Mm-hmm. Mm, certainly did. And, of course, uh, one of the things I wanted to sprinkle in here before we got out of this, this particular section was I was reading this, and I was, I was getting a good laugh about uh, your, your, your reference to the, uh, the chatty presider concept. And I remember years ago, I, I think it was, a, I wonder if it was Michael Davies' book. It, it, was, it was one of his three, uh, three trilogy books where he talked about, you know, mm-hmm. now, now it's, uh, it is, it's the talking church now. You know, everything is talk, 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 talk. So oh, yes. you talk a little bit about the chatty presider concept here. They, they, um, uh, they're going to explain everything to you. They don't leave you alone. You have the giant voice in the microphone. And the um, uh, presider has the uh, function of, of, uh, uh, to, of talking at you to uh, make everyone in the assembly feel nice and warm and fuzzy, to entertain them a little bit, maybe by telling jokes about the sports team, 
uh, or uh, you know, the, the Super Bowl or maybe something political or poking fun at himself. Uh, the heaven knows there's, there's plenty of reason for that. There's a uh, so so the idea is that he's he's going to chat and he's going to talk about everything. Now remember this lit this is the liturgy in the vernacular, okay? And you're supposed to understand it. Uh, why he should have to talk about everything? Well, um, this is uh, a, a part of the idea for this is uh, to achieve cohesion among the members of the assembly. And many books on how to celebrate the new mass talk about that. And so priest uh, priest uh, adopted this uh, um, uh, chatty presider. Uh, persona when they'd go into the sanctuary. There are books written how, uh, uh, about how to do this. There was a father, uh, Robert Havda, uh, and he wrote a book uh, for priests learning how to say the Sordo uh, called Strong, Loving, and Wise. And these were the, the um, uh, supposed to be the, what, what the uh, ideal presider was to convey to the assembly. What you ended up with in the practical order is instead of the uh, priest, the anonymous priest, um, who is standing in the, uh, the presence of, uh, uh, in the person of Christ, performing an action that, doesn't, uh, that isn't his, but is the action of Christ and the action of the church, what you have in the place of that is you have some clown who's calling attention to himself all the time and calling attention to the assembly. So the the uh, again everything is reversed and put on a lower level, and and the, the 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 notion of what a priest is supposed to be when he's at the altar is uh, is overturned. But this is again all of the 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 consequences of the theology of the 1969 general instruction. It's not something. It's not an an abuse. It's simply that that uh, the men in the parish. You know the the uh, Father Chuck at at uh, you know St John the Twenty Third Church down the street. He was simply uh, uh, carrying out these these wonderful uh, you know these wonderful ideas. And you saw that you would see this time and time again. We um, uh, we were subjected to this in the Novus Ordo, and people still are subjected to it. But it's all it all flows. From the uh, perverse theology behind the Novus Ordo. Yeah, I think another, I think another practical effect of this too. I mean, and certainly people that have been to the Novus Ordo and then you know now they go to the traditional Mass. I mean, this whole chatty presider concept it also destroys silence. I mean, there is so much talking in the Novus Ordo. There's talking from the presider. There's talking from the cantor. There's talking from the lector. There's talking in the assembly. It really just destroys the ability to even recollect oneself in prayer. And uh, I can't think that this this was you know, uh, you know by accident. I mean, this is a you know, this is a direct effect of this. It it represents a different theology. It's the the effect mm-hmm. of a new theology. Um, one thing that um, I've been told now, uh, I haven't uh, been to a Novus Ordo in a long time. But one thing that uh, I've been told is, is that it's now common in suburban American churches that people just simply chat in church before the service begins. 
they chat uh, before and they chat afterwards, and you don't really have any, uh, uh, you really don't have any silence or any recollection. But that is just that's the uh, again this 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 idea of, of, uh, of assembly uh, uh, as the the primary presence of Christ that is um, uh, that's coming out here because the the assembly is is uh, you know. Um, engaged in an exercise of solidarity, forming solidarity with itself. So that's why you have uh, why you have talking there. And then the uh, other uh, idea why you don't have any silence during the service is because uh, the, uh, the new theology has adopted the idea of the mass as classroom that they're going to teach you this, they're going to teach you that. And so uh, it's like a classroom, and you're constantly uh, being told things, and things are, are constantly being shouted at you. And you're supposed to, uh, you know, assimilate all of this, this information. So mm-hmm. th- that's why you don't have any silence. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm probably like you. I think the last Novus Order that I went to was in 2006, and I was going to a canonization service for someone who had just passed away. And, and uh, the, the, uh, you know, that's exactly what was going on. I mean, it was a dull roar. It was like I was walking into a baseball stadium and, you know, before the game, and people were just chatting it up you know, before the game began. I mean, it was, it, it was just this constant dull roar, and you had the drums warming up and the tuba warming up, and it, it was just there's just no silence and there's no recollection whatsoever. So um, I think now is a good time, and if our listeners are following along in the book, Father has a section called the deregulation of the liturgy. And you point this to being probably the strongest, you know, the strongest attack on the liturgy itself. And you, you spoke a little bit about this at the very top of the program, uh, about you know, some of the elements that have caused you know, the deregulation. But in this, Father, you write that prior to Vatican II, the liturgy was tightly regulated and controlled by precise prescription of rubrics. So it may seem like I'm, I'm, I'm setting you up here for, you know, for a softball, but uh, you know, why was this so important, and why did this have to go? Why did this tight regulation have to go? Well, the uh, uh, idea is that you accommodate the uh, liturgy, the liturgical actions, to what you perceive the pastoral needs of the people are. Uh, this was Joseph Jungmann's idea, that, that you don't have, the, the liturgy doesn't so much elevate uh, people, but it's supposed to serve some sort of a pastoral need. So you, you uh, take it to a lower common denominator. And to do that, you have to, uh, you have, to have deregulation. You have to be uh, able to say that, well, I think that on a local level, people need this. You know, that their particular faith, where they are at now, what they, um, or what appeals to them, what will form this particular assembly, uh, is, is uh, this idea. And this is something that can't, uh, can't be regulated from on high, but I, Father Chuck, at the local level, have to have the freedom to do this because I understand my own assembly. So mm-hmm. uh, you, you have to have uh, deregulation in order, to, uh, in order to accomplish this. Again, it's, it's everything is flipped on its head. And mm-hmm. uh, this was one of the 
pervasive problems with the uh, Novus Ordo that actually in traditionalist literature was not talked about that much. Uh, hmm. People objected to uh, many facets of the Novus Ordo, but this particular um, this particular idea uh, this, uh, of deregulation was one that that was not. Um, uh, that people really didn't focus on. But it's one of the major uh, problems of the Novus Ordo precisely because uh, of the doctrine, discipline, and ceremonies paradigm that we talked about earlier, that, that uh, this is public worship. It's going to affect, affect what uh, people believe. And if you deregulate it, then in effect you deregulate belief, which is exactly what happened. Hmm. You also write here um, that the that the GI intentionally deregulated large portions of the new mass, and, and you give three specific examples to back this up. Now I'm I'm going to read this little portion here of the of the three examples. Some of which you talked about at the top of the program, but I think it's pertinent to this section and it can't be emphasized enough. But you write. This phenomenon is the result of the GI, which intentionally deregulated large portions of the new mass, allowing priests or parish communities to one select one text or rite from a number of fixed texts or rites, two, omit or adapt certain texts or rites, and three, introduce or invent text as one sees fit. Now, my experience in the past, Father, has been I saw more number three. I saw <laughs> you know, the introduction and the inventing of text as one sees fit. Um, you know, perhaps you could you could go over these and and why this does indeed regulate uh, and you know, allow what you would call a liturgical free for all or like you know, a liturgical country buffet here. <laughs> well, the, uh, the the first one this this idea of all sorts of different uh, options or fixed texts or rites that you can use. Um, there are different. Variants on the penitential rite, different or orations you can choose. You can um, pick all sorts of from all sorts of different readings or mass texts. Um, uh, the you can pick what Eucharistic prayer you want, uh, different prayers. Well, what happens on that level is the uh, you destroy any sort of universality. Uh, in liturgical prayer, that uh, it all goes down, it ends up at the local level. And uh, whatever the priest who celebrates the Mass uh, thinks is appropriate among these texts, um, he, he picks, or whatever the parish liturgy committee thinks is, is appropriate, they pick. So there's no idea of uh, any sort of universality in it. Then uh, another thing is that uh, you can uh, omit or you can adapt certain texts or rites to a local situation. So the, there's several different ways of doing, uh, let's say, uh, something like uh, Palm Sunday or the Adoration of the Cross on Good Friday um, that are uh, allowed by the Paul VI Missal themselves, or you are free to omit um, certain rites. So you you can do this 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 picking and choosing. Uh, the um, uh, 
one of the one of my experiences as a parish organist on these first two points was uh, I was uh, I would frequently uh, be called upon to substitute at, at daily masses for other organist colleagues, and uh, there is one parish that uh, I went to, and the organist uh, said he had a, a stopwatch on the organ, and that when the pastor said mass. Um, what I should do is use the stopwatch to see how long it would take him to say Mass because he would always pick the shortest options. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, this guy got through it in like nine minutes and ten seconds. Uh, got through a novice order from beginning to end. And I was nearly breathless trying to think so the stuff fast enough to keep him happy. Wow. He picked all the short options uh, to uh, get get it over with. So uh, the uh, uh, so that's a, uh, an amusing, uh, exaggerated example, I suppose, of, of how this could work. But the the third um, uh, thing is the real wild card. Uh, the third possibility where you can there are so many places in the Novus Ordo where it is uh, legal to uh, pick your own texts. Um, or, or to make up texts. So you can um, uh, do it for the different songs. I remember that as, as uh, you know, an organist picking different hymns. I, of course, always picked hymns that were, uh, you know, that expressed uh, Orthodox Catholic doctrine. But, boy, it, it, uh, I was uh, rather rare, right? Then there are, there are mm-hmm. commentaries that are permitted in different uh, places during the course of the Mass, that uh, uh, where the priest can um, uh, introduce different comments as he sees fit. The prayers of the faithful can be um, uh, can be um, uh, written are supposed to be written locally. Uh, different the offertory songs, the communion songs, uh, and so on. So what what you end up with there is that uh, whoever plans the liturgy in a parish determines the content of these texts. And then you get all sorts of theological um, uh, theological errors, theological horrors that um, crop in that, uh, that um, uh, are imparted to the people because of a deregulated liturgy. Yeah, so yeah, my next question was going to be, but I don't really think it, I mean, I believe it might be a little bit redundant here, but uh, yeah, I think you have demonstrated why you say in your book that this was the most corrosive weapon to the Catholic faith. Yeah, it's it's the wild card. Uh, it is, uh, and um, the uh, you substitute the um, parts of the liturgy that impart doctrine and teaching to people. You substitute the authority of the church for that, some sort of a pu- public authority that regulates. Uh, these things. Uh, what's substituted for it is the whim of the local liturgy committee or the local priest or uh, you know the organist, the music director, and so on. So uh, everything um, uh, everything ends up being up for grabs then mm-hmm. uh, from a doctrinal uh, from a doctrinal point of view. 
which would explain why uh, in my in my twilight years in the Novus Ordo, you know, as I began to find what, what true you know true Catholicism was, I would find myself calling the parish and say, well, who's you know who's saying the noon mass, you know, because I was trying to find out you know who was less crazy. <laughs> Because sometimes they're really hard to figure that out. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And and then, of course, the people who you thought weren't crazy would always spring something on you. That was always, you know, that was always the thing. It's like, where did that come from? And and um, you know, so you do get this complete destruction of a um, um, uh, universality of the mass. Yes, and uh, I mean, how many um, of us? in the early years of the so-called reforms, and how many people maybe still now will travel around from uh, church to church trying to find a less crazy version of uh, the new right? And there, oh, there are plenty. Uh, there are still people that, uh, uh, that continue to do that. And all of this is, is the outgrowth of the principles that are laid down in the general instruction. Right, which, which you know, to my understanding too, you know, Catholics weren't supposed to do that. They were supposed to attend their home parish, correct? Uh, yes, yeah. You you were uh, normally expected to attend your home parish. It was something that was territorial. But uh, now you go on the road. People go on the road because they don't know what to expect. It's the, I call it the Bugnini surprise factor. You know, you, mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen when you uh, walk into uh, a church where the new mass is being celebrated. Mm. Okay. Well, I, I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up the show here, Father. I think we've uh, we've covered just about every key point here in in, uh, in Chapter Five, and I'd like to give you the opportunity to give us just a you know some closing thoughts, like you know a quick summary of uh, this entire Protestant notion of assembly, and your concluding thoughts that we we've, we've talked about tonight. This is the um, the idea of the assembly theology that's expressed in the 1969 General Instruction. It's it's the, the blueprint for the new mass, and it uh, is the it explains so many of the details of the new mass. It's the root of so many of the details of the new mass that faithful Catholics find uh, objectionable. So it's not a a question, as it were, of liturgical abuses, uh, of uh, uh, abusing the the, the, abusing the rubrics of the new mass, but uh, rather uh, these different manifestations we see of liturgical problems are a logical uh, outgrowth of of all these these fundamental principles. And once you understand that, that explains an awful lot of. what makes the people who, in the post-Vatican II Church, who still have um, a sense of, of Catholic faith and tradition, um, this explains uh, the root of, of their unease with uh, elements of modern worship. Okay. Well, we'll be back next month to uh, go on to Chapter 6, which is entitled The Cleverness of the Revisers. So that, that should be interesting as well. But before we go, Father, I, uh, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about some of the, the latest happenings over at SGG Resources. I know that there were some, uh, you have some uh, new webcams up for uh, SGG.org that conveniently went down on Holy Thursday. 
<laughs> yes, and, and we we've improved. We uh, uh, we uh, had a little crisis with that actually, some some uh, problems, but uh, we do have a new webcam and which has a better perspective on it. And we also upped our um, internet uh, broadband service here. So we uh, invite you to uh, assist at Holy Mass at on the the webcast page of sgg.org and um, you will see uh, an improved image as it were of of the sanctuary of our beautiful church and we uh, broadcast all of our Sunday masses our four Sunday masses live and we broadcast our school mass every day at 1120 school high mass live there are sermons uh, that are excellent sermons uh, that uh, the different priests at, at, at uh, uh, St. Gertrude the Great uh, give. And uh, we invite you to uh, participate in Mass that way. And we also invite you to contribute to our apostolate at St. Gertrude the Great, our web apostolate. There's a way that you can do that on, on uh, the uh, website as well. Okay. Well, Father, thanks again so much for your time this evening. I really enjoyed the show, and uh, we look forward to talking to you next month, and hopefully before then, another episode of Francis Watch. Very good. Thank you. God bless you, and good night. Good night, Father. God bless. And all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be helpful, informative, or any way beneficial to you and your Catholic faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated... Uh, we want to extend a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation that you can give to us is prayer. Please consider offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work uh, next time you pray. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to reproduce our work, we'd like to hear from you as well. Uh, you can reach us at mail at truerestoration.org for those, uh, for those questions. So. For the restoration, I'm Justin Soder, and may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.